All right, we are back in the book of John. After three weeks, um, talking about some other things, getting ready for to continue through the book of John. And uh, if you've not been here for our study of the book of John, not gone through it, or you've not been following it online or wherever, I want to make sure to catch you up a little bit. So the book of John um, is, is a book written by one of Jesus' 12, um, one of the 12 who followed him around for a few years. John was probably a young man when he did that. Um, and so the gospel of John and revelation of the letters are from much later. Um, and so He's writing down, and, and John tells us in advance, he tells us, if you've read through the book, he tells you near the end, he tells you that this is how I chose what I chose. Obviously, I didn't tell all the stories of Jesus. It's only 21 chapters, so he didn't get three years of someone's life in that amount of time. He says, I intentionally chose the ones that were to convince you, to persuade you, to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Christ, that he was the son of the living God, and that knowing this, you would believe in him and have eternal life. So what you're going to see, what we're going to continue to experience is this step-by-step-by-step progression of Jesus moving to the cross. Um, and so we, it, becomes, it, it starts bigger, like those uh, hurricane, you know, the reverse of those hurricane predictions. Like it's, it's going to close in and 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 get nearer and nearer and nearer as we get there. Um, and so we are just in the first third still of this book um, in chapter 7, but I want to make sure you understand. So we start the book with John making the proclamation of who Jesus is, that Jesus was God, was with God, was there in the beginning or before, and so that's who we're dealing with. John starts by telling us that. Jesus um, is born here on earth to experience life as a human being. We're going to talk more about that today. As he does, we get to meet him somewhere around age 30 when he's starting to gather followers. So he travels around as this, and he's gathering followers. He goes to a wedding um, in Cana, not far from where he was born. Um, he goes to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. He begins to offend the religious leaders of his time. Those religious leaders, some of them were genuine. They were, they were genuine men and women of God, um, but... Uh, many of them were not. Many of them were, were not offended by his theology. They weren't offended by his teaching. They were offended by the, his popularity. They were offended by the power base that he was gathering. That's what troubled them. And so um, we see that. We see both motivations there. Um, there are multiple witnesses who attest to who he is. There's this guy named John the Baptist. There's a Samaritan woman, a Capernaum official, a paralyzed man in Jerusalem who he heals on the Sabbath, thereby further, further frustrating some of the religious leaders from the time. And then he himself makes declarations as to who he is. So he has numerous witnesses um, to corroborate who he is and who he says he is. Chapter 6, which we just wrapped up not that long ago, he begins to focus on a little bit deeper teaching. So before now, he's kind of done things and he's referenced some of his teaching here and there. But then in chapter 6, he really begins to teach about the, the theology he is bringing, the, the significance of who he is. And when he begins to teach this... He begins to seriously offend even the common people. And so we begin chapter 6 with Jesus having thousands and thousands of followers, 10,000, 20,000 followers. And we end chapter 6 with him being, at the best, a few dozen, maybe one dozen. Um, that's where we end chapter 6. His relationship with the religious leaders is broken. Um, now many of them have turned to where they're prepared to arrest him and have him killed or maybe just have him murdered um, illegally. And so that's who we're dealing with, and that's where we are in the story. He's still in Galilee, which is, which is Podunkville, 
Um, that's, that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of the country, the, the big city of Jerusalem, and even the big cities even around the, other, the rest of the Sea of Galilee, like Tiberias, which was being built at this time. Jesus is up in the northern end of Galilee and um, kind of backwater country and has managed to chase off his tens of thousands of followers. That's where we're picking up. After this, Jesus continued to go about. He went about in Jerusalem. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Just talked about all that. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, I am, I'm reading a, a, a book out loud about Robert the Bruce to Ginger. I read out loud to her most nights. I read about Robert the Bruce. The, the problem is... Um, uh, one, if you have the predisposed, this predisposition to Robert the Bruce, the only thing you know about him is what you said, saw in Braveheart, then you have to wash all that away because that has no connection to history at all. Um, there was a person by that name. That's about how much the movie gets correct. Um, but when you're reading a book like this, so I'm reading it, the, the author of the book is assuming that I am a Scotsman reading the book. So the author of the book assumes I know Scottish geography, for example, or Scottish history, or even how to pronounce Scottish names. And, I, and I've got none of that going for me. And so what I'm doing is I'm reading it to Ginger, and she doesn't either. And so I'm reading it, and I'm, I'm actually reading through sections like this. I'm going through sections. I go, um, so um, Robert Bruce went, um, well, he, he went to two or three places and um, stopped at a castle, stopped at a castle, um, had a battle there at the castle, it looks like, um, with a bunch of people, uh, and that's, that's how I'm reading it. And so there's sections, I'm like, the whole sections, until it gets down to actually the details of a battle, which are interesting and I can follow, a lot of it is me going like, I, that's how a lot of people read the Bible, is they read through it and they go like, so Jesus was, he, and, um, he was some, somewhere, and so people were following him, and then he, then he, and then he kind of went somewhere else, I think, and, and then there's this feast. Aren't you glad that you've recently done a study of the feasts? So that when I say, he went to the, it, that was the Feast of Booth, that, that that at least triggers some memory for you, that you're like, I know I'm supposed to know about that now. Like I, like I have that in my notes, I, at least to recognize that, like isn't that so cool? So here's, just to trigger some memories for you, if you by the way, if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here for when John Keeling and I stood on stage and taught through the, the Jewish feasts and festivals in two Sundays, um, which was really just a terrible idea from timing, we needed like nine Sundays, but two was what we had. And so as we talk through that, um, the Feast of Booths is, is the one, by the way, today is the last day of the Feast of Booths um, for 2018. It ran until today, and so, which is kind of cool. It, it's wrapping up today. But in the time of Jesus, first century, just a real quick reminder, the Feast of Booths was the one where everyone, all the males were required to go to Jerusalem. It was a pilgrimage. They were all required to go to Jerusalem. Once they would get there, the people who lived in Jerusalem would welcome them into their booths, into their tents, their kind of lean-tos that they would set up. And they would have been everywhere in the city, wall to wall, back to back, on, on balconies and on rooftops and everywhere. Millions and millions of people coming in and doing this. And the people who lived there would be hosting all these guests and these pilgrims who would have come in large groups, um, usually large caravans of people traveling through the countryside to go. A couple of things you might remember from John's teaching on this one. One is um, that they were expecting a Messiah to show up at the Feast of Booths someday. One of these days at the Feast of Booths, someone was going to step up and say, all right, I'll just cut to the chase. It's me. I'm the Messiah. That, that, they're all looking for that to happen one of these days. 
Two of the things that were done at the Feast of Booths, one is the ceremony of lights where they light these big lamps, um, 150 or more feet high in the temple courtyard, and, and these massive oil lamps that would have lit the whole city. So remember, as we go through chapter 7, that that happens during the, the, feast, the week of the Feast of Booths. And the water ceremony where they would go down. Everyone would make a big parade. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam and they would dip in a golden bowl and fill it up with water and walk it back to the temple. So keep in mind, that's the feast we're talking about. It is not a one-day feast. It stretches across a week. And so, and so have that in mind too. It's not just a, an, an event like Yom Kippur. It is it's across a week. Okay, so good. Um, so you don't have to do the, they went somewhere and did something thing in your head. You actually know what they did and what they were doing. So verse three, his brother said to him, uh, and, and you know what I'm going to do? Starting in verse three, I'm going to read down through the rest of the chapter to put it all together, or the rest of the section we're covering today, and then I'll come back. But so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, for your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. For the, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, back to where we were, um, going back up. So, verse 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. So this is an intriguing little section here. We don't really know what the brothers are thinking, <clears throat> but I want to make sure you understand a little bit of background here, because many in the Christian world have been raised with a tradition or just heard or taught and didn't realize that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, if you turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 13, 55 and 56, You've got a crowd of people who are questioning who Jesus is. So Jesus is making all these proclamations. He's performing these miracles. And people are saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't these his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters here with us as well? Now, if you were raised, there are certain traditions that teach within Christianity um, because certain popes have come along and added, tried to fill in the story of Mary. And as they filled in the story of Mary, they've added things to her story that are really not biblical. For example, that, that Mary, though she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, that Mary continued to be a virgin throughout her marriage to Joseph, however long that lasted. Um, again, nothing biblical about that. In fact, kind of the opposite. Um, and so because you have a passage like this, the, the, the context of this passage is clear. The, it go, the, that tradition goes on to teach that then Mary um, was ascended straight into heaven. Um, also, like Jesus was, that she ascended straight into heaven and was still a virgin when that happened. But this passage makes it pretty much abundantly clear that that's not the case at all. That, that Jesus had these half-brothers. By the way, remember they're half-brothers because of the, the whole Son of God thing, right? So they're not... That's, <laughs> They're not, they're not actual full brothers. These are Mary's children, presumably by Joseph. 
um, that, that at some point, it seems like Joseph dies. He, he leaves the story somewhere. The last time we hear of him is when Jesus is, is 12, and then they seem to be referencing him in the background, like maybe historically here. It's hard to know. But regardless, at this time when Jesus is 30, he has at least four brothers, the four who are listed here, and then it says, and all his sisters, which certainly is at minimum two, and all certainly sounds like maybe three or four. And that wouldn't be strange. Mary was probably 14 years old or so, 15 years old, when she gave birth to Jesus and got married. And then you would have every few years probably, or every year during her childbearing years, would have had another child. So here she probably has an additional, say, eight or so children to Jesus, who was the big brother, obviously. He was the eldest son, the eldest child. Um, and there's, there's lots of comedy, obviously, that's just asking to be made in a passage where you're talking about um, this. You can imagine all the different times that, that the brothers and sisters would have heard the phrase, why aren't you more like your brother, Jesus? You can imagine that would have been something James and Jude would not have been pleased with. But you may not realize that when you're reading your Bible in the New Testament and you come near the end of the New Testament and you get to the book of James, that James is this James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. The Jude, whose book is next, is the same Jude, or uh, that is later, that is the same Jude that is in this, the Judas that's here, the half-brother of Jesus. These are, these are his brother, half-brothers and half-sisters. So we know they existed. We know they were real here from this passage. And of course, they're thinking, well, you ought to go to the feast. I mean, if you're claiming to be a Messiah, remember Jesus has just recently chased away all his Galilean followers. And so he, maybe he's rebuilt a few of them, but they, most of them went home. They didn't want to hear this teaching about blood and flesh, and that was too much for them. They didn't want to hear that. So you can imagine the brothers, are they just giving like, uh, you know, professional advice? Hey, you chased off all, the, for all your followers here. Maybe you need to go to Jerusalem, which by the way, is where all the Galilee followers would be going because everyone is, all the men at least, are supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so they're saying you need to go there as well because this is what the brothers would have been preparing to do. As Jewish males, they would have been preparing to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And so there's going to be probably a big caravan and they're going, Jesus, you ought to come. And apparently they'd picked up on the fact that Jesus wasn't planning on going. Even though it's the law, Jesus is sitting there not, not preparing, not putting together stuff to go with the big caravan from Galilee. So they say, maybe you ought to go. There's a lot of different motivations for this, but here's the motivation we know because the passage has told us, you already just heard it a second ago, they didn't believe in him. This is, they, they didn't believe that he was who he was saying he was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah or the Son of God or the Christ or whatever. It doesn't sound like they believed in him really as, as anything significant at all. I'll comment on this in just a second, but understand, we don't then know what their motive is for sending him. Some, one, one commentary, um, which I think this is kind of cynical, but possible, said the brothers were mad because it looked like their big brother, who they thought was a con artist, was, was gaining a pretty big following, and they were going to get to kind of jump on this bandwagon of Jesus' popularity. And when Jesus chases off all his disciples, they're mad about it because now their chance at financial gain is gone. Again, that's pretty dark, but not impossible. So here you have these brothers saying, you need to go up to Jerusalem. You need to declare yourself because that's what people do who are in your line of work. This whole Messiah thing, you're supposed to go up to the, to the, to the Feast of Sukkot, to the Feast of Booths, and you're supposed to proclaim yourself there. So why are you hanging around here? So Jesus responds to them. Um, oh, oh, I did want to comment. So when do they believe, by the way? 
Um, this is kind of cool. In 1 Corinthians 15, we get this passage. For I delivered to you, this is the apostle Paul writing. And by the way, Paul is making an argument here that literally the, the, the 1 Corinthians 15 has the apostle Paul saying to you, if you're out there and you go like, ah, you know what, I don't believe this whole people were crucified, that, that Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead. And Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, well, if you don't believe me, ask the other witnesses. And Paul's saying, you don't, you don't buy this on me. And then there's a whole bunch of people who experienced him after this. Uh, verse uh, 3 of chapter 15, for I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, the, other, the rest of the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Um, the admission is a good one. This is, this is important. Understand, Paul says, that he, Paul, the apostle Paul goes on to say he was the last one. He was the last one that Jesus actually appeared to at some point. But Paul is saying, listen, if you don't believe me, there's, there's almost 500 other people you can go ask and ask them what happened. This is not the behavior of somebody who's making someone up. He's saying there's, there's hundreds of corroborating witnesses to this. Go ask. Go, see, go check with them if you don't believe me. But notice the name he lists in there. Then he appeared to James. This would have been the James, Jesus' half-brother. It turns out that apparently Jesus shows up to his family at some point between his death between his resurrection and his ascension. He showed up with his family, at least to James. Now, if you don't believe, and you think your big brother is a con artist who claims he's the Messiah, and he's going to be killed, and then he's going to be raised from the dead, when he is killed, and then he's raised from the dead, and he shows up, that's enough to convince even little brothers. Even at this point, the little brothers are like, okay, okay, we get it. Like, well, okay, we... we and they become part of his followers, but notice they weren't. One of the comforts I have in reading scripture is when stuff like this is revealed. This is an admission at this point. Um, if you're faking a religion, just some advice. If you're going to create your own religion and you're going to write your own holy book, you don't want to put things in it like that his family who grew up with him did not believe in him. You don't want to put in things like, hey, his brothers... The ones who saw him perform some of these miracles, who saw how he lived out his childhood, who heard mom tell stories about wise men and shepherds, who heard mom tell stories about, about their, their cousin John leaping in his mother's womb. And those guys go like, <laughs> I mean, okay, whatever, mom. They don't buy it. You don't put that in there. I would recommend against it. It's, it's actually very validating that the Bible puts that in there despite the PR mess that it is. You realize in most new religions, all of the initial converts are the family members of the founder of the religion. That's who believed first. All of the original converts of Islam were Muhammad's family. In fact, just about, they were just about the only converts of Islam until the swords started coming out, were family. Um, this, is, this is really common. So just, just have in mind, it's a big deal that the Bible acknowledges this and that his own brothers who did not believe in him this year, within the next couple of years, are going to suddenly start believing in him, writing about him. This is after he's gone. Not till after he's gone do they start believing in him, writing about him and being martyred in his name. Something convinces even the skeptical little brothers, 
It's pretty big. All right, verse six. So they say, hey, you should go up to the, to the, to the uh, feast. We don't know what the, exactly their motives were, but it wasn't belief. <laughs> Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, some of you, if you're looking at your Bibles, if, especially if you have like an NIV, but there's many other translations too, you notice that I skipped a word in verse 8, if you have the NIV. You go up to the feast, I am not, if you have the NIV, yet going up to this feast. That yet is not in the Greek. Um, personally, I think this passage becomes so uncomfortable that the, the translators added that yet in to make this feel a little more palatable, this passage feel a little more palatable. This is a challenging passage. Um, I said in the first service that um, this one is the only, one of the only passages that's more challenging to preach is John chapter 8. In fact, when I asked Paul at the beginning of when we were going through the book of John, hey, jo hey Paul, what, what would you like to teach from the book of John? And he said, not 8. So that was, that's how he started, just not chapter 8. So we'll be, we'll be in chapter 8 in a few weeks, and you'll get to see why. But um, this is another one of those challenging passages. But I, I want to comment on, on some things here. The world can't hate you because you're of the world, he's telling his brothers. See, they don't believe. So they're, they're still part of the world. This is a, a common teaching of Jesus. Is he, he says there's basically two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. It's always wild to me, especially now that we have social media and everyone reveals this, that how, how shocked people get when the world acts like the world. How shocked Christians get. It's like we still are expecting something different than that. That we go, oh, this will, be, this will be where we get our good news. Finally, we'll get good news from this sector of the world. And then when it falls on its face in front of us, we're somehow caught off guard by that. That's, that's, they're all in the kingdom of the world. They may be appearing to compete with one another, but the house divided against itself doesn't stand. That the kingdom of, of Satan is not at war with the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of the world isn't even at war with the kingdom of the world. It may look like they're in competition at times, but whether they know it or not, they're fighting for the same goals. They're fighting for the same end. Even if they don't mean to, they serve the same king, just like we're supposed to serve the same king. So we shouldn't be surprised. So let not your hearts be troubled when you see the world acting like the world when you see unbelievers acting like they're slaves to sin and darkness and lies, like they're deceived and they don't, they don't understand the truth, don't let that weird you out. It's, it's because they're deceived and darkened and fooled and hidden from the truth. They're slaves to sin. That's, that's why. So as Christians, let me just, I'll, I'll comment on this at the end again here in a minute, but, but just don't be caught off guard by that. And by the way, this idea of hating Jesus Here's what's wild. It's, it's so interesting to watch a culture that, that really wrestles with this idea because as a, as a nation, though not a Christian nation per se, founded on many Christian and Judeo-Christian principles, it's so hard for us, especially here in the South and in East Texas and especially Tyler, we're like the little diamond on the cowboy on the buckle of the Bible belt here in Tyler, Texas. That's his, <laughs> this is his Bible belt as it gets. And, and so we get we get caught off guard and we see worldliness infecting things and infecting things around us. We're still sometimes caught off guard by that. But one of the common things that the world wrestles with is they like Jesus as a mascot for love. 
That's something they like Jesus for. They want to use him as a mascot for love. And so they go, um, well, Jesus would not, Jesus doesn't do this, or Jesus doesn't teach against this, or Jesus doesn't preach against this, or Jesus doesn't mention these things because Jesus is, is love, and love wins, and love conquers all, and, and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes they're quoting scripture, and sometimes they're not. And a lot of times, they're t- even when they are, it's coming out of context. I want to make sure you understand something about the type of love that Jesus teaches. Jesus isn't a mascot. He is a master. He is a Lord. He is a Savior. He is God. So he's not... You don't get to just kind of wheel him out when you feel like it in order to kind of point and go, oh, look, see, this is a, that's not how this works. Instead, listen to how Jesus himself talks about loving him. So we go, oh, Jesus is love. Yes, that is true. And here's what he says about that. John 14, 15, in the same book, same author, John 14, he, John 14 Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This passage doesn't get quoted very often when we talk about the love of Jesus or loving Jesus. Or 15, 12 through 14, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. 14, and you are my friend if you do what I command you. Or the same author in a different letter, 2 John 1, 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So understand, the type of love that Jesus is telling us to have is the type of love that obeys him. It's not the type of love that says, hey, this love allows you to obey yourself, to do whatever your heart desires. That's that's what Jesus means when he says love. He means, hey, you can do whatever you want without there being any consequences, without there just whatever you feel like doing. It's all the same. No, Jesus' version of love is if you want to love Jesus, you have to obey his commandments. That's part of the process of loving him well. Love cannot win unless obedience wins. Those two things are inextricably linked scripturally. So let's, let's make sure that we don't somehow try to divide love and truth or love and obedience apart from each other. Jesus isn't going to be the mascot for that. The world hates him And he says the world's going to hate us, by the way, and they did. And we go through phases of the world being more or less comfortable with us. It seems like we're moving into a phase in this culture right now of being less comfortable, maybe, than the world. And that's happened before. But it is intriguing to me. I said in the first service, like, there are times when I wonder when I read passages like this to go, okay, I, I get that there is this worldly hatred building for Christianity but I do fear sometimes that I'm not hated enough as an individual by the world. Like there are times I'm like, I don't, I don't know exactly. I'm not supposed to trigger that. I'm not supposed to seek that out, I don't think. But yet there's this weird like, and, and incidentally, let me just comment. Like, I don't mean you hate me. You're the church, right? You're, that's not what I'm saying. Don't anybody misinterpret that. What I mean is that the world seems reg, rather comfortable with me sometimes. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that. It's, it, it, it makes me pause and think though. Jesus doesn't have the luxury of just going and doing whatever he wants when he feels like it. He's actually listening to this very specific, very step-by-step path that God has put him on that is the plan they created before the beginning of time that would involve Jesus being on the cross. So Jesus can't just willy-nilly go like, sure, whatever, I'll just go up to the the temple, I'll just go up to the feast. No, he has to wait for the leadership of the Spirit. Jesus is experiencing life as a man, so he has to wait for the leadership of the Spirit. You can go whenever you want because you're not the cosmic redeemer of mankind, so you can do whatever you want. When you get arrested, if you get arrested, what you, me? 
I've got to follow the plan. And I have not yet had it revealed to me that I'm going up to this feast, so I'm not going. No plans on going. Not going to happen. So verse 9, as he literally waits upon the Lord, we use that term kind of as a cute little thing that we like to say to people. Jesus literally, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. That was the plan. It wasn't his time. He wasn't going. He remained in Galilee. This is when it gets a little awkward. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, here, probably the language helps, but not publicly, but in private, which is how Jesus did things, right? Most of his miracles and stuff like that, with the exception of the feeding of the masses, were done privately. Here, Jesus is going up to the temple. He's going up to the feast in Jerusalem, but he doesn't go with the, with the he goes privately, probably meaning not with the big caravan. He doesn't go with a bunch of people. He just goes up on his own. And by the way, the feast is now ongoing. It's a seven-day feast. So a few days have passed, and now suddenly Jesus goes, gets up and goes. Now, the reason this is a problem, a, a lady who was in a Bible study um, with me many years ago, she actually didn't know how to read. And so they, we had to teach her how to read, and then we went through the whole... Um, we were going through scripture and we would go through something like this. So because she was new to all of this, she didn't know the questions you're supposed to ask and not supposed to ask in the church or in Bible studies. This is a chap, this is a verse that even many commentaries just kind of skim over. They just, eh, we, don't, we don't need to talk about that. She asked me the question innocently. It seems like Jesus was telling a little fib here. Now, that's a great question to ask. And when you read this, it's totally healthy. You would say, like, seems like Jesus told a little fib. He kind of deceived his brothers a little bit. And here, by the way, is important. Sometimes people will say, like, well, he didn't lie. He said, I'm not going yet. Right? I'm not going yet. But the problem, that's why they add that yet into that one. I'm not going to this feast. It is not yet fully my time. That's why they go back in and go, like, you know what? He means another yet here. I'm not yet going up to this feast. That's, that's what he meant. And by the way, he may have. That's, I'm not a translator. It's not out of question. That's a possibility. But maybe, maybe there's even an easier way to engage with this. Jesus Christ is literally waiting upon the Lord. He's experiencing life as a man. And it's, by the way, pretty important that Jesus didn't lie here. Um, one of the prophecies about Jesus from Isaiah is that no deceit would be found in him. It's not enough that he just doesn't lie. Like, it's not enough that you go, like, well, he didn't lie. He clearly sent his brothers to the feast under the impression he wasn't going. And we can't turn Jesus into Obi-Wan Kenobi here, okay? We can't have him saying at the end, like, well, you know, the, tru the truths we hold on to are, I mean, depend largely on our own point of view, right? You we can't have him doing that. That's troubling because we don't want him saying that, say, for example, at judgment. We don't want him going like, well, okay, I know I said this, but what I, no, see, it's important that Jesus is not deceiving his people, including this situation, but I don't, I don't think there's any reason to think that he is. I understand why somebody at a cursory glance might ask that question, which I think, again, some people don't like these type of passages. I love these. I feel like I learn a ton from them. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. I think Jesus wasn't planning on going to the feast. I think he had no idea he was going. I think the Holy Spirit had not yet revealed to him that he was going. He tells us he doesn't even say his own words, but only the words that the Father gives him. And I think Jesus, did his brother say, you ought to go? And he goes, I'm not going. God has not yet guided me to go. Remember, Jesus is experiencing life as a human. And as humans, we don't know tomorrow. We don't always know what we're going to do next. Can the Spirit reveal that to us? Sure. Had the Spirit revealed things like this to Jesus? Sure he had. 
But remember, Jesus actually tells us himself that he's not experiencing omniscience. He tells us he doesn't know the day and the hour when he's returning. Only the Father does. So Jesus, though omniscient, is not experiencing his own omniscience here. He's not experiencing this. And I think he literally is like, well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going. And at some point, once the feast started from the time his brothers went, at some point in the next couple of days, the Spirit spoke to him and said, okay, now. It's time to go. Now it's time. And so Jesus immediately got up and went. There's no, there's no issue with that. Remember, Jesus was experiencing a sinless <clears throat> life. But he's experiencing a sinless life as a man. I think very often we want to portray Jesus' time on earth as though he's walking you know, a couple of inches above the earth the whole time, kind of floating. That Jesus never hit his, hit his finger with a hammer. That every time he hit a nail, it sunk all the way in the first time. Right? He just spoke it into, exist, into, into being in the board. Like he was experiencing life as God. That Jesus never missed a question on a Hebrew test. That we'd go like, well, that, that can't happen. He's experiencing life as a man. That's not a sin. So I think, I think if we're not careful, we create this absurd experience for Jesus that would have been nothing like what a human being experienced. So like today, for whatever reason, I don't know if any of you are having this, I'm tired. I'm just super tired. I don't even know why. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not that behind on sleep. I'm not, I, maybe I'm fighting something. Maybe there's some kind of allergy or something like that, just stress in my life. But I mean, I'm super tired today. I, I literally, at one point, I mean, I thought this morning, I was like, I better not pray very long. I'll, I'll like, I mean, I won't make it to the end of the, the prayer at the, uh, at one point right before the sermon, like 20 minutes before the sermon, I actually had this thought. I'm not kidding, by the way. This is not... I mean, it is funny, but it's, I actually thought, like, I hope the speaker's interesting today, forgetting it was me for a moment. Like, <laughs> like I, I'm that, like, little fuzzy. I mean, in two minutes, I'd be asleep in two minutes. Um, I don't know what that's about. We need to understand Jesus had days like that. There were days when Jesus was exhausted. He was so tired. It, it, we have that one account of him that we've referenced where the disciples put him in a boat, maybe already passed out asleep, exhausted that they put him in the boat. He, regardless, he rides in a boat of glued together strips of wood in a storm in the Sea of Galilee, which we've talked about. You gotta be tired to do that. He's, he was that tired. He experienced life as a human being. In my opinion, part of that is not knowing for sure if he was going to this feast or not. And the Spirit said, okay, now. So he goes. There's no dishonesty in that. Anyway, that's, that's what I think is going on there. Now, He's going up. This created a little tension for us. So we hear Jesus is going up to the temple, going up to the feast in Judea, in Jerusalem, where we've already been told a couple of verses before that they're, trying, they're going to kill him. If they get a chance, they're going to kill him. This creates a little tension for us. So notice how John steps away from telling us what Jesus is going to do next. He's going to let the tension build here. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. And this little section, when John says Jews, he doesn't mean everybody. When he says the people, he means everybody. By the way, who all would have been Jews. But when he's saying the Jews here, he means the Jewish leadership. So they had their, they had their eyes out. They had their spotters there. There are millions of people. There would have been people at all the different gates watching, is this guy coming? Because the people were all abuzz about Jesus. He had fed thousands of people in Galilee, and all those people were now here. And so this is going on. Hey, have you heard of this Jesus character? Well, I know he showed up here a few months ago and turned over the, 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 the tables in the, in the temple, to, but no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that we, we know he healed a guy. We heard he healed a guy on the Sabbath, and 
well, that's nothing, man. In Galilee, he's been doing some amazing stuff in Galilee. So everybody's talking about this Jesus character. Is he going to show up here? Why is it important whether he shows up there at the Feast of Booths at Sukkot? Because who's supposed to show up at Sukkot at some point? The Messiah is. And they're going, and, and, and the, you can imagine that the religious leaders are going like, we're not going to let him get here. We, we can't let him get here. He shows up here, and there's all this buzz going on around him. This could be huge trouble. So they're checking, they're checking armbands and stamps as people are coming into the city, as they're coming in through the different gates. And finally, um, the, the, the feast starts. Jesus isn't there. Okay, we made it. He decided not to come. Smart guy. Um, he at least knows his place, whatever their perspective was. The people are having this conversation. Now, by the way, it's, notice their conversation. The people are having this conversation. Some are saying he's a good man, and others are saying, no, he leads people astray. Don't need to stay here long. Just a reminder that this is, the very, this is a very important argument about God, the, the, the infamous or famous Lord, liar, lunatic argument. Jesus is going to claim in no uncertain terms that he is God. If you claim you're God, you don't get to be a good man unless you are God. If you claim to be God and you're not God, what you're doing is leading people astray. Those are the only two options. C.S. Lewis talks about that Jesus did not leave us the option of respecting him, respecting him, Jesus, as a good moral leader. He didn't leave us that option, and he didn't intend to. He, he creates that an impossibility. He claims to be God, so he is either God, or he's a liar, a con artist, and has, and has led billions of people astray, or he's a lunatic, who thought he was God, and somehow no one managed to pick up on that, which is not at all feasible. So you're, you're left with this, well then, if he's a good man, then he must also be Lord. And they're wrestling through this before Jesus even shows up. The people are already fighting about this. He's a good man. No, he's leading people astray. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to see that played out a little bit. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The people were afraid of the Jewish leaders, we're not going to come out and say, I saw him do this. I'm not going to testify to him. I'm not going to give a testimony for who he is. I'm not going to proclaim what I've seen. We're just all going to keep it quiet. But it's this buzz, this rumble that's going on. You can imagine the, what, a, what a seething kind of explosion is, is waiting to happen as you see this kind of stuff going on. So that's, that's what's going on at the Feast of Sukkot. Everyone's distracted by the discussions about this Jesus character, who, by the way, didn't even seem, doesn't even seem to have bothered to show up. That's where we end the conversation. But I want to comment on a couple of things before next week. One is, if you find yourself in the position ever of the Jewish leaders and you realize that your religion requires you to be in charge, then you're not following the teachings of Jesus. If, if you've got to use fear and domination and that kind of stuff in order to move your religion along, then that's, you're, you're not practicing it the way Jesus was trying to practice it. When Christianity has stepped over into that, it's always been a mistake. It's always been a bad decision. That's not how Jesus does this. He could have done it that way and chose not to. The other thing I want you to see is the pattern of steps that are going through here. So one of the things that, that we'll, as we go through the book of John and, and chapter 7 in particular is, and, and I've just barely referenced this first service and had numerous people come up and say, thanks for referencing that. So I thought maybe, I didn't intend to, I just kind of did. So let me say it here too. Um, <clears throat> when we look out and see what's going on in our nation, very often it creates a lot of anxiety and anger and frustration and nervousness and all those different things in us. Um, and, and what that does, that puts us in this passive responsive role that is not an appropriate role for Christ followers. So 
Um, God, is not, God is not such that things are going to spin out of his control. Um, we see it, and yes, are we, are we frustrated by injustice? Are we frustrated by the, the, the seeing people engage the way they do in the world? Sure, but remember, they're the world. One that shouldn't shock us or surprise us. We should be at peace in the midst of that. But the second one is, this is where we're good. This is where we're actually best. So as the politics, I mean, it, it, in the blink of an eye, the media is going to move on to some new crisis of the moment. Whatever's going to create clicks and whatever's going to cause us to watch commercials, at some point that's going to change. And it's going to change all of a sudden. And all of a sudden something that was radically important is going to not make any media at all in a very short amount of time. And the politicians are going to have a new topic to fight about, and they're going to want to move on to that new topic, the things that might get them elected or might not get them elected. And that's what they're going to want to talk about. I mean, in a period of a few weeks, all of a sudden, this crisis that our country is in is going to be forgotten into a new crisis. And there'll be a new one. And there'll be a new one. But here's what's cool. What we as Christians can do is we can maintain the grace and strength and power and love and obedience and justice that Christ has taught us. So there's a lot of people being hurt in this. There's a lot of people who are engaging in their own pain. No matter which side of the aisle they're on, we have people all around us engaging in this pain and fear. We as Christians, when the world has moved on, we get to still engage in one another's lives. We get to still serve and minister. We get to still have groups to focus attention on the issues that people are dealing with, injustice and pain and abuse and all those different things. We get to still do that. And that's where we change the world, through Christ. Does it happen at the political level? Sometimes. But it's interesting that when you look through Scripture, that God didn't choose one of the Herods to be the Messiah. He didn't choose one of the sons of Herod to be the Son of God. He didn't choose Xerxes. He chose Esther. He didn't choose Nebuchadnezzar, he chose Daniel. Now, he, he worked through the world with those people too, but all through the stories, what we need to be praying for is that, is that God will allow us to be faithful to what God has called us to do in our world, in our area of influence. So maybe a little less stress about what's happening outside of our control and more engagement in the things that God has given us to do today and tomorrow. Pray for each other and for our leaders, um, etc. So I, on that thought, Again, I said that kind of in passing first service, but a number of people said that was probably the most important thing you said to me this morning, so I thought I'd pass that along to you as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word and the peace that passes understanding and the, and the, the comfort that you give us by which we can then comfort others. You've even given us, um, you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit who is literally called the comforter. So the power of your spirit we can comfort each other and encourage each other. And yes, we can um, and be engaged in the political uh, stuff that's going on and the national affairs. Not that we would ever minimize any of that. But just not to be caught up in being washed to and fro with each wave like the world is. But instead to stay steadfastly on you. And to fight for what you have been teaching us to fight for for thousands and thousands of years. Not just this week. God, I, I pray that through your word, we'd be reminded to wait on you, to listen to you, and to obey your commands and not worry so much about what everybody else thinks ought to be going on. Thank you, Father, for the power of 
your word to teach us. God, help us um, to believe, put our faith in you for every day of our life. We pray this in your son's magnificent name. Amen.